0: Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, Brett. Hey, Jeff. Today, Brett. Today, I today we have an exclusive. <laughs> oh my god! We have a very special guest, Miss Stephanie Reed Trayband. Wow. I know you know her, but I'm gonna tell our audience who she is. Well, first. I think everyone knows her now, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Stephanie's is truly a great story. She grew up in one of the poorest small towns in America, family of medical professionals, and now she's one of the top lawyers in South Florida, and she's a partner at Levine Kellogg Lehman Schneider and Grossman where she focuses on commercial litigation. But I think she would agree that her sweet spot is receiverships. She has represented receivers, and she's been appointed deputy receiver and receiver in several high-profile cases in and outside of Florida. And she's received several awards, recognition from numerous organizations. She's often a speaker on litigation and insolvency matters around the country and abroad. Welcome, Stephanie.
1: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome. We are so happy to have you here today. We are. Fresh off the great press we were just talking about, (laughs) right? So Stephanie was, for those of you who missed it, she was on the front page of the Miami Daily Business Review. Really nice profile piece on her receivership work. So congrats to you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Tell us a little bit about
2: yourself and how you got to this point in your career.
1: So I think Jeff was right that my current sweet spot is receiverships, but I didn't start out, I don't think anyone starts out as a receivership lawyer. I started out actually my first year when I worked with Jack Hickey, I was a personal injury lawyer Mm -hmm. to the chagrin of my medical professional family, (laughs) as you can imagine. But I got great training in terms of how to be a litigator there. And then from there, I went to Proskauer, where I got great training on how to Litigate Complex Matters. Mm-hmm. was there for almost nine years. I believe that is where I encountered you guys for that's the right. first
0: time. That was in West Palm Beach, Posca Is Boca. that right? Boca. 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 That's Boca. Right. Yeah. So I did the commute. From Miami yeah. to, to Until I start having
1: kids. And then I'm like, that's a long way to drive. <laughs> yeah. So.
0: That is true. But I think people that have long commutes always find a way to say, well, it's against traffic, or it's all highway, or it's all this. Or, it's all if that. I
2: may make a plug that it's a great time to listen to the practice podcast.
0: Right, actually just, yeah. absolutely yeah. that in is those very days, true. I don't think you were yeah. listening to no, podcasts. No, but it was books on tape. That kept <laughs> today. me
1: today exactly. society. Yes, you should right. absolutely be catching up on all of your podcasts <laughs> so, since, and all of the past episodes. Since I already
0: interrupted you, can we scale me <laughs> do that? Because more. you grew up in a small town yeah. in America, yeah. but we didn't tell anyone where you're from. They might be guessing from your accent, but where are you from originally?
1: I am from Sneedville, Tennessee. It no. is Hancock County. Over home is how we all refer to it.
0: <laughs> where is Sneedville? It is we're in, in Tennessee, I mean. Upper
1: East Tennessee, right on the Tennessee Virginia line. If you think of Tennessee as a knife, it is in the point of
2: the knife. Sneadville. It sounds like a Doctor Seuss right, it book, does. right? It does. The Brett, I have
1: never, right. ever, no, no, ever, never heard ever heard that. Ever heard You've that. never
0: heard that. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm sorry. That's know. cool. It sounds very whimsical. Yeah, Sneedville. I think that's great.
1: And so, so how would you yeah.
0: end up here in South Florida? Because yeah. you went to Tennessee. I remember that because right. Brett mm-hmm. and I are both Gators, and so you were always we like you us. anyway.
1: We managed to put Exactly. exactly. So, went to Tennessee, went to Tulane for law school, hmm. and I got bitten by the bug. I wanted to be whatever I thought at that time was an international lawyer. Didn't think I wanted to go to New York, so I thought, let me go to Miami. And
0: That was it. Know. So, it was New York or Miami, and yeah. so I don't want to go to New York. I'm going to Miami. I'm
1: going to Miami. I Love mean, there's it. a little bit more to that story. Right. <laughs> but The bottom line is I came here and I met my husband a month after I got here. So the short answer is the reason I'm here is Mm -hmm. because I met my husband a month later.
2: (laughs) The reason you stayed. The
1: reason I stayed. That's right. Right.
2: Exactly. Tell us the transition from, like you said, personal injury Mm -hmm. to more complex and then into receiverships. I know for me, I started out not as personal injury, but in criminal. I was a prosecutor, then went to complex and then got into the whole insolvency and receivership type work. Sure. So how did you find that in that transition?
1: So at the time I was doing personal injury, we were also doing some commercial litigation as well, and I enjoyed that far more. Mm-hmm. And when I went to Proskauer, that's pretty much all we did was complex commercial litigation. But when you do that, you at times represent banks, you represent other financial institutions, and so you bump up against receiverships or trusteeships or whatever in the course of that work. So I can remember at the end of my time at Proskauer, I started representing a receiver or two. Mm-hmm. And then I went to work at Jones-Walker in the middle of the height of the financial crisis. We did a lot of work for banks at that time. I represented a lot of the regional banks here in Miami. And for a while, I was having a hearing probably every two weeks, seeking to appoint a receiver over some failed right. commercial construction. So I had a lot of interaction with receivers at that time, mm-hmm. got to know a lot of them. And I still, at times, also represented receivers. You know, it was just transitioning that way. And then when I came to work at Levine Kellogg, I've been there 10 years this year, actually. A lot of my partners there had actually been equity receivers appointed in cases involving the SEC, FTC, different attorneys general The progression was quite natural because of the different kinds of cases I had worked on throughout my career. And we practice in South Florida, another day, another Ponzi. I mean, (laughs) really, that's how it is. And so there's plenty of receivership work to be done, and we've been very fortunate to have receiverships here. Mm -hmm. We've had several in Alabama. That's sort of a funny story. You mentioned my accent. Right. The first case we had in Alabama, one of my partners suggested that I get on that case, number one, because I had some receivership experience. And most importantly, because I had a Southern accent. <laughs> and I tried to explain right. to my South Florida partner that you know that my accent does not sound like their accent, right? Right. They know that I'm not from
0: Alabama. <laughs> right. Right.
1: So it has it's been close, an ongoing. Though, right? uh, you know, right. ask right. anyone from Alabama. Right.
0: if This is right. close. Different oh. is different. Different, different right. is different.
1: <laughs> same, same, but different. Right. I don't know. No, but the but anyway, from
2: Miami, is, it's the same. Just yeah, go. It's to close. him, it right. sounded the same. Right.
1: So it's an ongoing joke with us that I'm basically a receivership lawyer because I have a Southern accent.
0: And how'd you end up serving as receiver or representing receiver in Alabama?
1: My partner had been appointed receiver in a case involving the FTC, but it was a case FTC and the Office of the Attorney General in Alabama. Mm. They had encountered him, thought, this guy knows what he's doing, does great work. And it flowed from there.
0: Fantastic. So what do you
2: find in terms of the work on receiverships? Do you find it rewarding? And clearly you do because you do it and you enjoy it. What do you find so rewarding about it? And what does it sort of allow you to do as a lawyer?
1: Sure. Let me, for those... You may not know what a receivership is. Generally, a receiver is appointed by a court Mm -hmm. to do a couple of things. If it's a case brought by an agency like the SEC or Mm -hmm. the Attorney General, generally the company or a company has been accused of consumer practice violations, deceptive trade practices, or they're running a Ponzi scheme. Mm -hmm. So a receiver is appointed to take over a business and either continue running it legitimately or most often as you guys know to shut it down
0: and protect the and protect the, the victims yeah records. protect
1: marshal the assets <laughs> so that we can try to provide a recovery to those who have been victimized by either the ponzi scheme or the deceptive practices so the rewarding part is that that we have an opportunity to try to help people who have obviously unwittingly either invested in a scheme or otherwise just been victimized and to find ways to get them a recovery In a case or a situation where they would otherwise be completely just shut out, it's the notes we get from the investors and from the people who, you know, like in the case of my plumbing receivership in Alabama, just getting the thank you from the people who didn't expect to get anything after their house was completely destroyed from the plumbing work. Thank you so much. Just the simple, kind thank you is
2: rewarding. For the most part, a lot of times you come in either as receiver or as counsel for receiver, and there's no money. It's all gone, right? right? And so the work you're doing, yes, I mean, obviously you benefit to the extent there's a recovery, but you're doing it without the ability to get paid a lot of times. And not knowing if you're going to get paid until there's a recovery.
1: Exactly. A lot of times we do not know when we first go in whether there's going to be any money or not. We have had cases here in South Florida. Mm -hmm. We've had another case in Alabama where there was no recovery. There was no money with which to pay the victims or to pay us. So, I guess you just call it a labor of love for (laughs) for the state. I mean, we do what we can. But sometimes the best thing we can do is to get in, analyze the situation, and then get out. It's not a situation where the company gets to go back to doing bad things. The company is just shut down, but there's no long, drawn-out process. I
0: think a lot of people don't have an appreciation for... The suddenness and the urgency with which a receivership—you know how it starts—sure, because essentially one day a business is operating, and I know they all happen in different ways, but in many instances the business is operating, mm-hmm. and then you knock on the door, and that's it—you're shutting exactly them down, right. and there's customers out there who just want their toilet fixed, and they're calling you, going, "Well, who's going to put my toilet <laughs> back together?" <laughs> right. Or right. I
2: ordered these goods; they're coming. Are they going right? to come right. or right? right. So wow, you got to right. field that, right, from right. day mm-hmm. one. You right. have to deal with that issue, get in there and figure out where are the records, where are the bank accounts, where is right. everything, right.
1: right? And one of the big things we have to do is freeze the bank accounts. Like yeah. in the plumbing case, it was payday on the day we walked in. Oh. Everyone had received their paychecks only to find out that the bank accounts had been frozen. Oh, yeah. And, you know, people were out on jobs doing plumbing work. We had to call them back. There was another case involving a sex and human trafficking case oh, where— We took over some massage parlors, Mm -hmm. walked in, and people were there in the middle of their massages. Mm -hmm. So that was a little unusual and uncomfortable. But you do (laughs) what you have to do. There are other times when you walk in and it's just merely the employees there doing their boiler room or whatever kind of action. So it's more just rounding up the people and dealing with their shock of being put out of business. And you don't have the customers at issue, but you never know. You just got to prepare for whatever may happen.
2: So that's the kind of receivership you're talking about, which is a governmental agency Mm -hmm. comes in because there's wrongdoing. And so there is this shock of the immediacy of it. They don't know what's happening and all of a sudden you come and knock on the door. But there are other types of receiverships that may start, for example, a bank Sues a borrower Mm -hmm. and then files a motion for receiver. So it's a little more gradual and there's a known quantity, right? And notice and everything that's going on.
1: You know, in the bank situation, especially, it's not a Ponzi scheme most of the time. It's just someone needs to come in and collect the rents and otherwise run a building because the money that is coming in to the building is not being used to pay debts. And the bank is entitled because of the huge mortgage they have is entitled to those debts. So the receiver in that context is, I don't want to say it's receiver light because they do big work, but they're not having to investigate fraud and right. recoup right. money Preserving for re- status, investors.
0: Right. Yeah. Preserving the status quo. Protect Precisely. this asset
2: while we fight about it. Exactly. Right. 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 Exactly. It's different, right? Like right. walking into like human sex trafficking or walking into a plumbing business and just shutting everyone down. Yeah, I mean, you have to then figure out where everything is and bring it back in so right. that you can understand, rebuild
0: it, if you will. Right, Legitimately, exactly. and then rebuild it and figure out what happened. Yes. Yeah. With the plumbing business, mm-hmm. they were overselling, or whatever the terminology is, upselling, quoting small jobs, and then coming out and saying it's actually much worse. And there was some legitimacy mm-hmm. to the business, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you had a stopped up toilet, they could have done that, and if they charged you 200 when it should have been 100, you would have never okay. necessarily known that you had been overcharged. Right. But I can remember one particular victim in that case. This was in the middle of Alabama. The person had a house valued at $32,000. The plumbing work that she was told that had to be done on her house was at least $18,000. Oh and she was told if she didn't do it, her house would be condemned. She had two little kids. What's she going to do? She feels like she's over a barrel. And the way that happened is that they. Lured people into getting loans that they could not pay.
0: Borrow the money to pay yep. for this repair because yep. exactly. it's necessary. That you have to get done. Oh, so it yeah. was bad. It's just the worst type of theft and wrongdoing on the people who are the least capable of bearing right. it. Because a woman like that in a rural area probably has a difficult time getting a plumber to come out in the first place. And they know it. They know we're the only right. game in town. They can charge what they want and take advantage.
1: We have another one involving a diamond investment business. They preyed largely on people in Canada who had retired and you know were looking for a place to invest their money, mm-hmm. get a nice return, only to find out that they were victims of Ponzi schemes. And this is a case we're about to make a distribution on. People have had to come back out of retirement and go back to work because their entire retirement was lost in the Ponzi scheme. Mm-hmm. You hear these stories and you're just thinking, How is it possible that, number one, there are so many bad people in this world, and number two, that they're able to do what they do and victimize so many people for so long? I mean, kudos to the agencies when they come in and shut Mm -hmm. them down,
0: but it's sad. There just aren't enough agencies or agents, right? I mean, you mentioned South Florida as the Ponzi scheme capital. And by the way, we should explain what a Ponzi scheme is. I guess if you live in South Florida, you know what a Ponzi scheme is, but Mm -hmm. maybe if you don't, What's a Ponzi scheme? A Ponzi
1: scheme is basically where you use new money, new investments, money from incoming investors to pay the old investors. Basically, it's a shell game. You're not actually investing the money and getting the returns from the money. You're robbing Peter to pay Paul.
0: And there's so many different variations of that. Usually, it's wrapped around or masked around some legitimate business. Sometimes. We've seen various grocery diversions or life settlements. Usually they're presenting it as something and right. maybe they're buying that actual product and maybe they're not. You and know? typically
2: when you get into those, you start to look at what the offering is mm-hmm. and you sit back and you feel bad for the victims because they're looking at this going, yeah, I trust this person right. who's in front of me and they're telling me it's a solid investment and it's going to happen and <sighs> I'm going to get paid 50% interest on my money. Right over two years, or whatever it is. I'm going to earn— Or 20, 20, 20%, 20, whatever it is. Sometimes they do it more legitimately, Mm -hmm. and they come closer to something that sounds right. But it's usually when we pull back the layers of the onion, right, on these Mm -hmm. Ponzi schemes at their core, they're all the same. Right. They're promising
0: these returns that they'll never achieve. And as long as they keep getting another investor, the other ones are satisfied, and they get the new investors by— Referring them to the old investors Mm -hmm. who can say, yeah, I got my money back. I got this return. I made the investment. I got paid. Right. Yes, you got paid until Until the the new one stopped coming. The faucet
1: was turned
2: off. Yeah. And in today's society, I mean, you can drum up a website. You can drum up fake papers, Mm -hmm. documents, and make it look all legit.
1: I like the Rothstein case. They had a completely
2: false. (laughs) We (laughs) weren't (laughs) involved in net
1: receivership, but yeah, yeah, completely false. So my advice to those who are listening is— If the investment sounds too good to be true, it's because it is. It is, right.
0: And when you say you did your due diligence, due diligence is not just talking to someone else who invested. Because that's typically what we hear. What do you mean? I did due diligence. I know three other people who invested in this thing and got paid. Or I did it once and got paid the first two or three Mm -hmm. times and the fourth time I got bit.
1: And if you're guaranteed a return, red flag.
0: Right. Right. And
2: I use that in the context of, actually, legal advice. So I Mm -hmm. always tell clients, if you interact with somebody and they guarantee a result, run. Yeah. Run the other way. Amen. (laughs) And so if somebody guarantees (laughs) a return, run. Don't walk. Run away because Mm -hmm. it's not possible. I mean, that's a standard to live by, but it's very easy for us on this side when it's all falling apart and we get to really peel back the layers and see it, it's easy for us to say that. But when you're sitting there across the table from somebody who perhaps you've known, you've trusted, Mm -hmm. And they're selling you on this. Right. I mean, it's hard. And it, at its core, for some people, is it they just want to earn more money and sort of like the stock market's just too slow, too low. And let me try and earn some more money on this. Right, you know? exactly.
1: And we have the benefit of not only hindsight, but we have the benefit of our training. Right. So many of these people have no idea about the things that we're now talking about. They find out the hard way.
2: Yeah. And it's painful. And I know we've seen it. You've seen it a lot, which is when you get in there and you talked about it, which is someone takes their entire retirement savings and they throw it down into an investment that is a fraud. You have to tell them the recovery, if any, is going to be pennies. Usually exactly. On the dollar.
0: And it's not even just, I invested $100,000. Right. In their mind, they had $180,000 mm-hmm. because they have been getting statements right. saying that their hundred is now grown. And so it's not only did you not have 180. You don't even have the 100 that you gave. And then obviously the other side is those who receive distributions. Some of them are going to be targets of clawbacks where we represent a fiduciary and it's that fiduciary's job to bring some of that money back to create some equity.
1: And that's a very painful
0: conversation.
1: I'm sorry. I know that you think you're a victim, but you're actually not. You may be a victim in certain circumstances, but We're actually looking at you to have to give some of that money back because of how you got it. So maybe explain
2: that a little bit to those that are listening, right? Why that is. Why, if you're a victim, you got paid some money, but not Mm -hmm. all of it. Why you may have to actually pay some back.
1: Sure. And I think this got some press during the Madoff case because we heard terms about net loser. Mm -hmm. And that's really what it is. Let me see if I can do a basic math example. Mm -hmm. If you invested Mm $100,000 and you were promised X amount of interest— Over two years, and over the course of that two years, you got Mm $120,000, but you thought under your documents, you're going to get $140,000. Well, you actually got back more than you invested. Therefore, and using my numbers, there's a $20,000 gap. You got back the amount of your investment plus Mm $20,000. So, you're possibly on the hook for the $20,000 that had been taken from Peter to pay you, Paul. Right. And that's where you may be in a situation where a receiver or fiduciary comes knocking right. to say, hey, how about that 20000
2: Well, and the idea, right, is to bring all the money back in right. and then to distribute it equally right. Right. across right. all of the investors or More
0: victims. Mm-hmm. More equitably. Yeah, right. More, really, yeah right. as
1: best you can. Right. right.
0: And the other part of that is that that twenty dollars in your hypothetical was designated as profits or earnings or interest, interest. Mm -hmm. but there were no earnings or profits or interest. You just got somebody else's money.
1: Right, exactly. They took it out of your pocket, Jeff, and put it into your pocket. Even though
0: you might have four years of statements saying that you received, that you earned profits. It was not. Yeah, Yeah. It really is just a horrible situation for people. Their expectations, most of them are oftentimes retirees. Mm -hmm. They don't have another opportunity to earn this kind of money. This is all they had. And not only did they not get what they think they got, but what they got, they're going to have to give back. Right. It's not and pleasant. Then
1: in the article that we mentioned at the beginning, we were talking about the EB-5 investors and the schemes there. That's another group of people right. who are just victimized because these are foreign nationals who have been lured into this program to invest a large sum of money. At the time, it was 500000 The limits have gone up. You keep your money at risk in a project to develop jobs here in the US under the promise of at the end of that time you're going to get your green card. Right. And then you find out, oh, my money was not used as it should have been. Yeah. So I basically just gave some fraudster five hundred thousand dollars of my money. They didn't do what they should have done. So I'm out five hundred thousand dollars and I may well be out the possibility of getting a green card. Right. It's really I'm most likely awful. out yeah. that. Yeah. And
0: yeah. for these last three years or whatever it is, I haven't otherwise been working to get a green card in some other way. And so you thought, okay, Mm -hmm. in three years, I'm moving to be with family or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And now that's gone. Yeah. What advice would you
2: have for practitioners out there or potential receivers or newer receivers that are coming up when they get the call? Like, how do you pre-prepare, as an example, to go to, let's say, the plumbing facility? You got to fly there, right? You got to knock on the door, Mm -hmm. but you're not just going in cold, Right. right? You're doing some prep work in order to make it more efficient and productive when you get there.
1: Each case is different, but what I can say on the front end, and I have learned from my partners, and I give a huge shout out to Jeff Schneider, who I work most closely with, in terms of all of these receivers, because oftentimes he's the appointed receiver Mm -hmm. and I work as his deputy or his counsel. And I've also learned a lot from Michael Goldberg, who is the receiver in J.P. I've learned a lot working with them. You basically do your due diligence on the front end. You've gotten the call before the entity knows it's happening and you may or may not find out days in advance. You learn all you can about the company. Ideally, like in the plumbing situation or other ones, We go early. We do what I call do our recon missions. We (laughs) go see what the building looks like, find out as much as we can about employees, how many employees are expected to be there. We assess whether we need law enforcement as backup. And we just do our best to come in as prepared as we can. We come in with signs that say, this property is now under a receivership. We tape it on the door. We find out if we can in advance, where they bank so we can immediately send out notices to banks to freeze the money. Mm-hmm. If we don't know in advance, that's one of the first things we go in prepared to do because you have to stop the money yeah. because that's one of the most important things. I don't know if I can give advice other than that, yeah. other than perhaps talk to experienced receivers. Right.
0: Yeah, There's so many components to it. So all the things you said, and then it's really so much more than lawyering because there's an element of PR. You're having to communicate right. with Employees, investors, vendors, lenders—there's so many constituents who are affected by these. Many of them, including employees, are innocent. They have no yeah. idea that they're involved in a fraud.
1: No, they have no idea because they're not the ones making the decision.
2: Well, and it's the messaging when you get in there. You talk mm-hmm. about the PR, right? It's yeah. the messaging to employees who may look at the owners like, "I've been working for this individual for forever. I don't understand what you're saying." Right. And then they're maybe a bit combative to you initially. Mm-hmm. And so there's part of that, right? Right,
0: for sure. Yeah. It's a fascinating area. I mean, when you find out about these frauds, nobody wants to think that their job or their employer, who wants to second guess the source of their paycheck? Right. And the psychology of, you know, these right. scandals is
2: really yeah. fascinating. I guess it'd be interesting if you walked in and they all said, whew, thank God you're here, man. We <laughs> knew we were just waiting, waiting for you to get here. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. I, that would be interesting. Can we talk briefly about, we talked around all receivership and all your work. The article that we had alluded to talked about your work on the J-Peak, which you referred to as well with Michael Gorberg as a receiver. Tell us a little bit about that case and... What it was about and what ended up happening in the result and the great work that you did.
1: Sure. So this was an EB-5 fraud. Investors, largely from China, mm-hmm. although from other countries, invested in what they thought was an expansion of an existing ski resort in Vermont. You think, okay, you're in Miami. What's the connection here? The connection was one of the principals, Ariel Kiros, was located here in Miami. Mm-hmm. His office was here in Miami. So these people invested their money, thinking they were going to get a green card. Their money was diverted in m- multiple ways. We could spend the entire time talking about <laughs> mm-hmm. where right. that money went, but right. just know that it didn't go where it should have gone. Even though, thankfully, in this case, some of the money yeah. at least went to the project. There was a ski, res- there was there was a ski resort. There was a ski resort. There is a resort, functioning right. ski resort. Right. So there is a functioning asset that has money. So that um,
2: resulted in green cards being issued or?
1: It's a nuanced okay. answer. okay. There were multiple stages there. So in that case, we have the ski resort, which is, I think, one of the last few remaining assets of the receivership. But we looked at it. I was involved in what we call the takedown, which is taking over the local office. Mm-hmm. So I was going to Mr. Kiros's office here. I led the team there. But once we've taken over, and this is where Mr. Goldberg was the receiver, other members of the team were in Vermont, and they went into the hotel and took over operations there. We then look at targets who helped facilitate this fraud. I'm not saying anything that's not been made public because every time you enter into a settlement with a receiver, it has to receive court approval. So, we went after several financial institutions who we believed were complicit in the fraud. They denied all liability. And after some fighting, if you will, in court, we have reached settlements with a number of those. One of those was Raymond James, huge settlement, over $100 million. Other banking institutions in varying levels, $4 million. Some attorneys were involved. That total settlement was $8 million. So we were fortunate in this case to be able to go after several large, I'm going to call them targets, that had money. You know, we talked about the cases where there are no assets and no potential targets. Here, we were able to go after several and get some recoveries that are turning into nice recoveries for the victims. One settlement was, I think, $35 million with a law firm.
0: That's great. And so yeah. these are those investors who otherwise would have basically got nothing right. end up getting something from the products of your negotiations with these third parties. Yeah. Not and that's all of often them where the cards. recoveries are. Yeah. It's usually very rarely come into a receivership or a bankruptcy estate and there's just a pile of money that's sitting there. It's like, yeah. oh, let's just take this and go Yeah, out. they didn't deploy it, they didn't, right? And right. They, right. <laughs> that's never the case.
1: No, they're not just keeping it nicely no. in a bank account right. just waiting for you to come and say, oh. There's not right.
0: a safe behind yes. the portrait on the wall. Like there might be, uh, but, but it'll be empty by the
2: time you get there. That's there's not that, going to be anything that's in it, right? True. Exactly.
0: Well, Stephanie, this has been fun. We didn't even touch on all your stories, but there's just so many Maybe we'll have you back for another visit.
1: We can definitely do a To Be Continued. For yeah.
0: sure. Yeah, we'd like that. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review. Follow us. Share the show with your friends and family and your enemies and anyone you know. <laughs> Frenemies. Share <laughs> it. Just share it. Spread it out. Spread the word. The Practice Podcast. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank
1: you, Thank guys. Thank you, Nelson.
0: For more information on this show and other resources, visit fastamron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at fastamron.